All right, Pete Giuliano, it is Monday, the 7th of February, 2022, and that makes us, what's the number, Pete? Number 235, 235. 235, and it has been a long time since we recorded a Solder Smoke podcast. Man, I was feeling bad about it. It is entirely my fault. I blame it, and this is something that you have, you say with great trepidation during the month of February. I was six weeks in the Dominican Republic, so I was away. Mm. Yeah, um, It wasn't really a happy trip. We were dealing with a family uh, situation, but... The good part was we were in good weather. So we're back now, and it's time to do another Solder Smoke podcast. While I was in the DR, I managed to make just one radio contact, Pete. I had my Ubidex with me for part of the time. And from a 12-story apartment, a 12-floor apartment in Santo Domingo, I made one contact with the Microbidex on 17-meter CW. I feel virtuous. Oh, you go. Virtuous, man. CW. You, you mean there was something aside from FT8? I could hear it. You know, I use, I use FT8 to, to find out if my receiver is working because I tune around to that frequency. I think on 17 meters, it's 18.100 around there. Yes. And you can hear that. All that kind of stuff. I actually did more shortwave listening this time than I did transmitting. I brought with me for the second part of the trip just a little sony shortwave receiver that has a bfo in it and i did some some shortwave listening i have a my account of my heroic one as one solo contact on 17 meters up on the solder smoke blog you guys can can check it out if, if you like um but anyway and there was one other bit of of kind of electronic stuff that i did uh pete like like many guys i I am the inheritor of the discarded electronic equipment of my uh, my family members, of my of my kids, and of my wife. When they when they want to upgrade, when they want to get get a new computer, a new laptop, a new tablet, the old one comes to me, right? And then they all make fun of it, like, "Oh, you're so out of it. You're so antiquated." Well, one of the things that I inherited was a uh, a Google Chromebook that my son was using for a while when he was in college before he upgraded to better equipment. So I got the Chromebook. It was manufactured in 2016, which is not, you know, ancient. Not that old. I mean, yeah, but I mean, for the current generation, that's like ancient. But I got this thing going, and it's quite useful when I'm traveling because it's, it's not worth anything. So even if it got lost or stolen or dropped or broken, it wouldn't be a great loss. But when you're down in Santo Domingo, and this is the only piece of gear that you have that's working, it becomes pretty important. Um, and then all of a sudden, the screen just went out, went out, out, nothing. I could see very faintly that a signal was making it to the screen, but it was almost as if the display wasn't strong enough for me to actually... Hiding see. in there. It's hiding in there. So I did what you do today. I went to YouTube on my phone which was working so on the phone i googled youtube you know chromebook gave the number can't see the screen or something like that all of a sudden three or four very helpful short youtube videos pop up telling me exactly what the problem is and they said it with great Mm. confidence too what it is is that it's it's a screen it's kind of one of these fold-up displays and inside there is a little connector that connects the motherboard to the display. Uh, 
comes loose. Over time, it comes loose. And then, or, or corrosion forms. The contacts are really very small. But they said, if you take this thing out and apply some contact cleaner and reseat it, you'll, your, your display will come back. So I, I searched around. I found an old can of WD-40 in my in-law's house. And I found a, uh, a spray can of isopropyl alcohol. I had exactly one tool with me. I had one little tiny screwdriver that I used to tune the BFO on the shortwave receiver because I had broken the control. <laughs> so wow. it turned out that this one screwdriver was the... Everything aligned. Everything, <laughs> the, the radio gods have spoken. When I opened this thing up, the screwdriver was the perfect size for taking the screws out and taking the display out. So I pulled it out, I checked the connector, I applied some isopropyl alcohol and a little WD-40 just for good luck, reseated it. Bob was my uncle. Oh, Talk about feeling virtuous, great. man. I felt, I felt like a, a radio genius having conducted this repair. And it, made, it, it improved morale quite a bit for me down there because so, I wasn't able to do a whole lot of radio during this trip. But anyway, that was, a, that was my one good story out of Santo Domingo. And we were briefly back. We were back in the USA during uh, the Christmas weekend. And I got back just in time to watch the launch of the James Webb Space Telescope. This is good news. This is good technological news. Man, I was nervous about this thing. It's like 10 or $20 billion. It's like a big project. It's going to be like 100 times more powerful than Hubble. They're going to put it out a million miles from Earth at this point called L2. And the thing is, it was they had to fold it up really light, like, like one of these origami, you know, f you know, things folding up, folding up paper sculpture folding. But there were 300 points of failure. If any one of these unfolding operations didn't work, the whole thing would be for nothing. So, man, they had to be super careful. It would take them a month from the launch to get out to L2. And during the whole process, they were going to be gradually unfolding the heat shield, the solar panels, the telescope itself. And, man, it went flawless. It's out there. It's out at L2. And, and I, I, just, I just think this was such a good news story. It reminded me a little bit of when they landed uh, the rover on Mars during the midst of the pandemic. My son was all, he said, finally something works, you know, and so that was, that was really good. So anyway, it's out there at L2. And they, a, an astronomer in Italy actually got a picture of it at L2, which is phenomenal. Can you imagine taking a picture of this thing? I guess it's about the size of a Winnebago. But it's a million miles away at L2, and this guy was able to catch it, not with an amateur telescope, with a professional telescope, but they were working out of Rome, and they got a picture of it. I put it up on the blog. So good stuff there, Pete. Good. Well, you need to crank one more factor. In. What's that? When was it actually designed, and when was construction started? It wasn't last week. That was a long time coming. So, so, so a long time ago... The existing technology of, I, I think is somewhere close to 10 years ago that they started on this, the technology 10 years ago is carried forward to today and yet it worked. I mean, you'd have a better chance of using today's technology, what we know today, uh, of making it work. So it's an even superhuman feat There was <laughs> for all that to take yeah, place. There was, there, was, there was a kind of amazing kind of international brotherhood stuff going 
you know, NASA didn't launch this out of Cape Canaveral or Cape Kennedy. They no. launched it out of French Guiana. Yeah. European Space Agency launched this thing, and I under, and that that required them to send the Hubble Space the, the 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 James Webb Space Telescope by ship through the Panama Canal to French Guiana, kind of a, a long and hazardous journey. But the rocket that the Europeans use has such an excellent kind of safety record. I think that's why they went with this particular rocket, which was I think a really a smart move and a very IBEW move, you know. Oh yeah. yeah. Anyway, yeah. good stuff. Anyway, that was that was a little bit of good cheer on uh, on Christmas morning. I think it was. Pete, let's talk about benches. Let's move to the bench. I know we we've got to talk about things that have been happening on a bench. Could I go first? Sure, right. absolutely. There's a few things I want to talk about, and I think it, it's better for me to go first, and then 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 you could talk about what you've been working on. Uh, for me, I, one of the things I want to mention is that I had a bit of an understanding breakthrough. I've been for a long time bothered by my incomplete understanding of how the Gilbert cell mixer works, how the NE602 chip that we use so often, I've used it in many, many rigs. And every time I put it in there, I hear Gene Shepard's voice saying saying to me, but you don't really understand how this chip works, do you? And he was, he was right. It finally, I finally sat down. This actually took place over a period of several months, trying to figure out how the thing works. And I thank a lot of people who are involved in helping me understand it, especially Alan Wolke, W2AEW, with some great videos. My phone is beeping at me. Let me turn it down here. Um, anyway, um, the um, it, it finally occurred to me how you how I could understand how this thing works, and it it required me to do something that I've had to do with other efforts at understanding, and that is to break the operation of the chip down into three different, three or four different segments. One, how does it do the mixing? Second, how does it balance out the, the inputs, both the RF input and the LO input? How does, how, do, how does it do all those three things at the same time? And how does it achieve good port isolation that we see out of the NE602? But using some of the diagrams that Alan provided and some that I drew up on my own, and I finally came to the point where I said, yeah, okay, I understand how the NE602 chip works. You know, the, the origins of this chip, the reason that Barry Gilbert really had to come up with this, with this chip was that, you know, the, the way a Gilbert cell, the way, the way a double-balanced mixer works was known for a long time. But double-balanced mixers usually involved fairly large inductors, fairly large transformers. They were looking for something that you could put on a chip, on an IC, where you didn't require all the physical space needed by inductors. So you needed a double-balanced mixer that would do everything that our traditional SBL1s do, but all on a chip without the, the coils. You know, you crack open an SBL1 can, you could see the two little toroids in there. Um, but they wanted to be able to do this to get the double-balanced action and the mixing action on a chip so it could be used basically for the early cell phones. And that's what that's what they achieved with a chip like the NE602 or the 612 or the SA602. It's all the same chip, really. And I just, I couldn't get my head around it. I couldn't figure out how they were doing it. But then when I broke it down into the three different operations, I could see it. And so I now I feel better, Pete, about using the NE602 chips in my rigs. 
I have put a blog post up with my understanding of this, with the different diagrams that I used. So if anybody else would want to see if uh, if my enlightenment my enlightenment works for them, take a look at the the blog post. You'll see it up there. It's within the last couple of months. But you know, one thing I'll, I'll point out is that sometimes and what 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 seems enlightening to me might not be enlightening for others. But for me, this works the way I understand it. And I've gone to some some of the experts and said. You know, am I getting any of this wrong? And the feedback I got was, no, 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 you got it. That's right. That's how it works. So I feel confident about that. That was a good moment. Now, I've um, one of the rigs that I used the NE602 in was a my first single sideband transmitter that I built more than 20 years ago. Yeah, more than about 20, no, 20 years ago or so out in the Azores Islands of Portugal. It was based on a design in Sprat Magazine, three cheers for Sprat, by uh, Frank, G3YCC, who's now a, a silent key. But Frank presented in Sprat this very simple SSB transmitter. And I liked the design. I had most of the parts. I adapted it, and I adapted it for 17 meters and built a 17-meter transmitter, not a transceiver. I used the, uh, the crystal filter out of a Swan 240 <laughs> transmitter. So these crystals were built around 1962. Uh, double lattice design, and I kept the um, the carrier oscillator crystals for it too. Uh, I picked up the Swan 240 in the Dominican Republic in the in the in the mid 90s, early to mid 90s, and kept the uh, the parts for the filter because it was most of the other most of the rest of the rig was in bad shape. Anyway, I I've been thinking about building a 17 meter 12 meter dual bander. We've been talking about this. Um, and so this, this caused me to kind of look at rigs that I had laying around to see if there was any bits of circuitry that I could use. I was briefly thinking about cannibalizing this old SSB Azores transmitter. But when I looked at it, I started thinking differently. I started thinking, man, I should get this thing back on the air. I should, I should blow the dust off this thing, maybe improve the impedance matching at the input and the output of the crystal filter, apply some of the skills and some of the new test gear that we have, and see if I can get the transmitter back on the air. So I did. Got the transmitter going. Then I started thinking, I need a receiver to go along with this. Out in the Azores, I had used my Drake 2B along with this this just transmitter, and it worked fine. But now I said, no, no, I should, I should have kind of a, a dedicated kind of solid-state receiver to go along with it. So I had kind of up on my uh, shelf, uh, a bare bones super hat designed by Doug DeMoor. This one was built from, I think, a Far Circuits kit by Dale Parfit, W4OP. I have played with this thing many times over the years. It's been on 20, then back on 17, then for a while on 40. But I just, I, I pulled it out and I said, I'm going to put this thing on 17 meters. So this required some, some, some doing. You know, I used my NE, newly, newly acquired understanding of the NE602 to build a down converter that would take the 17-meter the signal, say at 18.150, and bring it down into the range that I had the, the barebone superhead set up for. I had the barebone superhead set up for 40 meters. I didn't want to do a whole lot of re-engineering with it. So I just built a, a down converter using an NE602 to take an 18 megahertz signal, take it down. I ended up with having it come down at around 6.8 megahertz. 
So then it went into the, the bare bones superhead at 6.8 megahertz, and Bob's your uncle. Then it converts the whole thing into eventually to audio. I get the right sideband inversion that I needed, and it, it, worked, it worked fine. I used a little, um, one of these little crystal oscillator modules that are all floating around. You know, they have different frequencies on them. They're not just crystals, but they're crystals with the associated, you know, um, uh, I think it's a, either FET or BJT transistors in there. And I found one for 25 megahertz, which was just what I needed. So I just popped it in there with the NE602, and boom, 6.8 was coming out. It was perfect, just right, I thought. And I, I did a video on this, and I put it up. There's a fella who has come up with some really insightful feedback on some of these projects. I'm talking about Alex, R2AUK. Alex is in Moscow. And he took a look at what I did, and he said, hey, great, good work, but the output of that module is probably too much for an NE602. He says, you probably need to run it through an attenuator to bring it down to the right level, and you'll get better performance if you do that. This was a really good, really good insight. <coughs> and I checked, and sure enough, the module was pumping out way too much 25 megahertz energy for the NE602. So I did a real quick calculation, built an attenuator, and got it so that the right level was coming from the module into the NE602. So now I have a receiver set up for 17 meters, and I have a transmitter setting up for 17 meters. And the only thing I really need to do is figure out a, a way to, to net the two. Now, you know what I'm talking about with netting, but most of the people listening right now will have never operated anything other than a transceiver. But when you're using a separate receiver and a transmitter, which was the way we all did it back in the day, you need some way when you hear somebody calling CQ, ah, there's a station I want to talk to. He's, he's calling CQ. You need a way to put your transmitter on the proper frequency. So you have really, and I have over here behind me, here's the rig. I have a little switch. So I throw the switch and it goes to spot. This turns on all the oscillators and all the mixers inside the rig, inside the transmitter. I can then tune the transmitter for zero beat, and once I hear zero beat on my receiver, I know that I'm on the same frequency as the other station. My problem was that when I put the spot switch on, I heard not one tone, but two. Ooh. So which one is the right one? Very confusing, yes. confusing, confusing. So I started sort of trying to troubleshoot this thing, try to figure out what the problem was. I noticed that the problem really began at around 18116 megahertz. It didn't exist elsewhere in the phone band, but when I got close to 18116, I started to hear the other tone. So I just sat down with pen and paper, with an Excel spreadsheet, and with a program from Wes Hayward called SpurTune08. And I started saying, what is causing this second tone? What frequency combination is coming out of my VXO? I have a VXO running at 23 megahertz, and I have the carrier oscillator running at 5.176 megahertz. Now, there's a lot of calculations because it could be any combination of the harmonics of both frequencies. The good thing that SpurTune does is that it displays all of the, the harmonics up to about, I think, about the 12th or 13th harmonic of both frequencies and tells you 
if any combination of these will be producing a spur in the pass band that you're interested in. So I'm interested in the, the 17 meter band. I'm, I'm interested in a spur that's popping up around 18116 because that's what's giving me trouble. So as I tuned around, I suddenly realized there it is. First, I got it wrong. There was an, a, another combination that did would produce the signal, but that's not what was causing me the trouble. What was causing the trouble was the uh, the output, the main output from the VXO at 23 megahertz was interacting with the eighth harmonic of the 5.176 megahertz carrier oscillator. Whoa. And it and I, I knew that was it. I, there was a couple different ways to test it. I, I was certain that was it. And sure enough, on spur tune, it showed it right there. What was key was which way is the harmonic moving when you tune it. So when I tuned on the transmitter, I could hear the harmonic going down as I was tuning up. That indicates which combination you're dealing with. And sure enough, when I looked at spur tune, that's exactly what was happening. When I was turning it up, when I plugged in the eighth harmonic, and the main frequency of the VXO, it would be moving down as I tuned up. Bingo. That was it. So at this point, I departed to the Dominican Republic, and I left the whole thing on my workbench. While I was there, I thought about all kinds of different ways to solve this. One of the ways was to just put frequency counters from Sanjian on both the transmitter and the receiver, and then forget about audio zero beating, just visual zero beating. Just look at the two, tune it till two numbers are the same, and then I'm good. I actually ordered the, 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 uh, the, the frequency counters from China. They're here. I got them now. But when I got back, you know, there's a benefit in taking time away from a project, in, in letting your mind kind of get away from it. And going to the Dominican Republic is a good way to do that. So I went away. When I got back, I started looking at it, and I started thinking, man, Let's not do complicated solutions. A complicated solution would be putting these Sanjian frequency counters in there. I mean, uh, we even had uh, a friend from Australia suggest the use of the magic eye. VK2EMU said, hey, why don't you use a magic eye tube? And I said, well, yeah, it's a great idea, but it adds complexity. This is not a tube rig. So I said, why can't I just try, do what I can to sort of knock down the eighth harmonic from the carrier oscillator? If I knock that down, to a point where I can't hear it anymore, even though it's there, it's not gonna cause me any trouble. So I did a few things. I put the, the whole carrier oscillator in a little metal box. I'm usually not into a whole lot of shielding, but I did shielding around the carrier oscillator. I, I beefed up the low pass filter coming out of the carrier oscillator and moved the cutoff frequency up to around seven megahertz where I was trying to get a 5.7176. I put the cutoff frequency about seven. This would produce more attenuation down at the eighth harmonic. And then I built a little trap. I built a series LC circuit that would tune to 41 megahertz, which was the eighth harmonic. And I just experimentally placed it inside the carrier oscillator circuit. I'm using the carrier oscillator circuit out of the BIDX20. And I found that if I placed this little series LC circuit tuned to 41 megahertz, right at the output, right between the oscillator and the buffer, and then I watched it on my tiny SA. I could see that that 41 megahertz signal coming out would just drop. It would drop by about 20 or 30 dB, a big significant drop. And I was hoping that this would be enough so I wouldn't hear it. So I put the whole thing together. Bob was my uncle. Now I can tune even down around 18116. And the only thing I hear is the actual frequency of the transmitter. I don't hear this spur. 
So, I mean, this was all, uh, for me, really, really good. And, and it, was, it was a reminder of the spur problem that we faced when using the super hat, even the single conversion architecture. And I wouldn't have had any of this trouble if I'd been using a transceiver, really. But it's something to think about. And it, it, it's a reminder of how much attention we have to pay to spurs. Now, where do you find SpurTune? I know some guys are going to be thinking SpurTune. Now, I got SpurTune way back when as part of a Lad Pack uh, software package, I think that came with my original version of the uh, Experimental Methods in RF Design, the EMRFD book. But WB9KZY found SpurTune08 on the Wayback site for W7ZOI.net. It's under the EMRFD errata for the third edition. So if you guys are really intent on, on finding this software, that's where it is. Anyway, make a long story short. Now I got this rig set up here, Pete, and I've been making all kinds of contacts Ooh, on 17 nice. meters. Nice. I, I, have it, I have it here on the corner of the bench. I just reach over, and I make several contacts each day. You know, cycle 25, still not really kicking in. Not yet. 17 is still mostly dead. But I've been working a lot of Caribbean stations, the occasional European, a lot of stateside stations, and having a, a lot of fun with it. Anyway, I've talked too much. Pete, what's on your bench? Well, f first off, let me tell you, I, uh, I managed to find a crystal for one of my Collins KWM2s that I put it on 17 meters, and I got it tuned up there. So all I need to do is just switch the antenna. And so I list, I've been listening on 17 meters as well. And you hear a ton of signals at 18.1, but <laughs> not too much CW or phone. I, I just don't understand. I mean, the band is open. You, you've seen that. The band yeah. is open. But, you know, I get a reality check. I discovered something, and I mentioned this on the blog. If you go up a little bit further to 18.110, that's the frequency for the IARU, Northern California DX Foundation, beacon system. And they've got coordinated beacons all around the world that are constantly transmitting and they got a website where you could see at any instant what what is being transmitted and i can't hear most of the beacons the only one i hear regularly is yv5b in caracas all right i can occasionally hear victor echo 8 alpha tango up in canada further north and occasionally occasionally the one in Peru. But I'm not here in the Europeans and I'm not here in the West Coast. Now, this may be partly due to my antenna, but I don't, I mean, I, I don't hear a whole lot of stations. So I'm thinking that, that 17 might still be not great, not as good as we wanted it to be. But anyway, I might have to improve my antenna. But tr but listen around 18110, that's the frequency for these beacons. No, okay. I'll it's re it's yeah, really cool. I'll check that yeah. out. Yeah. Okay, so we're talking about my bench. I'd like to tag on to your eighth harmonic. Okay? And I want to start with a little bit about uh, crystal filters. Okay? And yeah. uh, there's a there's G4CFY, Anthony, and owns a company called Spectrum Comms in <clears throat> the UK. And he has two versions of crystal filters he's built. And, and they're really superb. He does a superb job. As a matter of fact, the 9 megahertz version is what uh, the Vienna Wireless Society used in their simple sideband transceiver project. I think you got one of those, 
Dean sent I do. You. I have one. Dean sent me one. That's, I've got so it. So it's, it's really nice build, small, compact, and uh, really excellent. He makes another version, a 10.7 megahertz center frequency. So you have the 9 and the 10.7. And, uh, of course, the 10.7 would be excellent for 17 meters because you get away from the 9 megahertz problem with 17 yeah, meters. That's good news. Okay, so, so immediately you look at the 10.7 and you say, Aha! I have a 3.5 megahertz analog VFO kick around the junk box. So if I take 10.7... And 3.5, guess what? 14.2 puts me right on 20 meters. How how wonderful that is. I got this nice, stable, analog VFO, and I'm all set to go on 20 meters. Now, if you look uh -huh. at the tuning range of the uh, VFO, you'd, you'd have to be around 3.3 to 3.6 when mixed with the 10.7 gives you the coverage. But at 14.2... The fourth harmonic of your analog VFO is right in the band pass. <laughs> oh man, I know. <laughs> the Bummer. Yeah. So, so the thing is, you really have to watch these mixing frequencies. I mean, you saw the eighth. Just think about yeah. the fourth. The fourth is going to go right, right through the band pass filter. So I, mean, I know. I mean, this frequency analysis is really, really critical in what you do. And, and really important. Now, if you took that 10.7, instead of using the 3.5 megahertz analog VFO, moved it up to like 24, then you could do the sideband inversion yeah. routine and you'd, you'd essentially get the 10.7 difference. The problem is, it'll, it'll, go, it'll avoid the low pass and band pass filter, but the frequency range is right, right in the 12 meter band. <laughs> <laughs> so, so you you can't just treat this stuff lightly. I mean, you really, really have to do a frequency analysis. You do, and it's it's hard, and it's especially hard with the warp bands because there was a lot of frequency analysis of this type done back in the day, back when more home brewing was being done on the five standard HF bands on yes. eighty through ten, and I think I sent to Dean an old GE. Note, note, notes that, that basically did this exact analysis that we're talking about, but only for 80 through 10. The five bands. Right. I haven't really seen anything like that that includes the work bands, which we're spending a lot of time on now. This is where the Spurtune 08 program really becomes useful. But I agree with you. I have been kind of haphazard in my selection of IFs. When I was building uh, my first or second BIDX, I got the brilliant idea that I was gonna, I was gonna make a dual bander for twenty and forty, and I think I selected the IF frequency at eleven megahertz, and I could get twenty meters to work, but I could not get forty meters to work because there was just no way. I kept getting all kinds of stuff, harmonics in the pass band, because I had not been careful or rigorous in the selection of the IF. So yeah, you're right. You gotta you gotta be careful about right. that. And to that end, um, uh, I had a blog posting through the whole month of January. And this tr subject, general subject area, is how to build a single sideband transceiver. And I have taken that blog posting and converted it to a Word document. And if you go to n6qw.com, you can download that, that document. And it covers things such as the crystal filter. <laughs> and yeah. what are you doing? 
It also, I took an attempt at documenting sideband inversion to show you how sideband inversion works. Yep. Another one is matching transformers, how to do the match. Really, I mean, super important. Uh, people who are experienced homebrewers get that screwed up <laughs> and they wonder why <laughs> things don't work. Yep. Uh, I also took some time to take a look at the. Oh, I'm getting 20 milliwatts out of my driver stage. How come I'm not getting 5 watts out of an IRF 510? So you really need to do the analysis. I mean, how many dB gain do you get in an IRF 510? And if you got 20 milliwatts coming in, you ain't going to get 5 watts coming out. You know, So right. I try to spend a little time on the math. And hopefully this will be of some use to, to homebrewers because I try to take every one of the circuits that you, that you have in a transceiver by by module so this way you give you some kind of start and then i got a comment that relative to well, why don't you go into the depth of the circuits and do all the analysis well i'm trying to give you a feel of just some of the things you need to consider uh, on my bench is the pssst and uh, it actually showed up on hackaday really cool very very except, cool except <laughs> When it gets put on Hackaday, you, you get these guys, negative criticism. You did not put the code on a GitHub. So now I have to email you to get the code. Why didn't you put it on a GitHub? Well, there's a good reason for that. Because <laughs> then I like to know who's building this stuff and if there's any interest. It, it, on a GitHub, I wouldn't know how many people downloaded. But right, right, right. By, yeah. by me putting the code. And then there were some other things is, well, you built that thing in modules. There's no circuit board for it. Yeah, I know. Yeah, this is. I, I always think this is when you when you see something on Hackaday, it's it's kind of a mixed blessing because you do get a wide audience and you do share it with a lot of people that wouldn't otherwise see it. But you're getting out of the ham radio community and you you're moving into the kind of the, the much harsher software computer community, which is I think really it lacks the kind of friendly collegial team spirit that yeah. we hope to see in ham radio there's this attitude there that you should haze the noobs which i just i can't stand that phrase i mean we, we talk about helping novices they talk about hazing the noobs and i think there's a, just a fundamental kind of cultural difference between the two communities even though the, the, the technology is often in common well the the one that really got to me was i it's the pssst is a seven transistor transceiver seven transistor some guy comes back and says you lie it's not seven you got more transistors in the lm380 and dash eight so it's not seven and you have transistors in the arduino maybe hundreds so it's not a seven transistor transceiver okay <laughs> there, there we go but i i mean it's just there are seven basic devices in the circuit modules, which I think, you know, make the sum and substance of it. Now, there's another issue, Bill, that I think is important that comes out of projects like this. And uh, I, I want to take maybe two seconds to rant a little bit. Uh, people will take the project. First of all, I always maintain that I see my projects as an experimenter's platform. I build them in modules, so you don't like this module, put a different module in. And by building a module that facilitates uh, the changes, but then people will say, "Well, I didn't use a nine megahertz filter. I used a twelve megahertz filter, 
and I didn't use your your code. I wrote my own code. It doesn't work. What's wrong? <laughs> so <laughs> you built another you built another rig, my friend. Yeah. Well, <laughs> you know, did you do the frequency analysis? For instance, with a twelve megahertz filter, you say, well, I'm going to put that in twelve meters, so I'm going to have a twelve megahertz VFO. Do you think you might have a problem, like on seventeen meters with a nine megahertz filter, the nine megahertz VFO? You know, I said I'm seeing spurs or you know, what's wrong with my code? I I don't know what's wrong with your code. What and I, I try to suggest that when I document these projects, start off by building it like it was designed. Because then you have a benchmark of performance. And then if you want to swap out the modules, just you know, do it me on a measured basis. Don't don't do it wholesale that you change all the modules and says, well, it doesn't work. If you change one module, you can always go back to where, yeah. where the basis was. Yeah, especially if this is the first real thing that you've ever built. I mean, that's uh, sadly, that's 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 the case often, that yeah. the guys will try it the first time, and then they'll say, well, it doesn't work, and, you know, yeah. who's 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 responsible for this? So <laughs> there there's an offshoot of the PSSST called the P-Shooter. And the, the pea shooter is a smaller version, a shrunk down version of the PSSST. And instead of using 2N2222As, I put some mimic amplifiers in there. So, first email that I got about the pea shooter guy says, Why did you use an OLED display? They're noisy. You shouldn't have done that. Uh, 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 <laughs> Well, okay, you know, do what you want, but you heard, there's a documented video, you heard how it sounds. Tell me what, what is bad about what you're hearing. So I, I have, I, I'm, I'm more than happy to share, but don't come back to me and tell me I did something wrong when obviously the results show that it doesn't. Now, you want to put a color TFT in there? Hey, have at it. Have, have fun yeah. with it, you know? Yeah, your mileage may vary. I yeah. mean, you know, you, so, Something yeah. I, use, it, but, but, well, I get it working. If I say it's noisy, guess what? Modular approach, I can change that. I can try yeah. something else. So, so, but it's and, just. And there's also ways of dealing with the noise. Yeah, I mean, I, yeah. had, I had noise, I had noise yeah. with an OLED display. Then I put an active, active filtering in there and, and knocked it right down. Yeah. So, yeah, it can be done. Yeah. yeah. So, yeah. You, you know, what is it? But anyway, uh, been having a, having a lot of fun working with these projects and uh, trying to document it, and you know, just more than happy to share with it. But uh, what is so amazing is there's still a lot of brand new technology coming out. I'm seeing more SDR radios come out of China. Just yep. take just take a tour through Amazon or eBay, and and they're now down in you know the most of them are QRP radios, ten fifteen watts. And uh, most of them are in the four to five hundred dollar range. So I mean, I, I can see with time that that's that's going to come down. So that's what I've been doing on my bench, and uh, I'm still working on the pea shooter. And uh, I'm I'm in no hurry to get it done right away. I want to do some things, but the whole idea is to get it something that's six by four by three. That's the goal. That's the box All right. size. That's six it. by four by three. Yeah. Very good, very cool. You know, there's a few other things that are coming out of your bench that, that, that you haven't mentioned. One, uh, Dean has had a big success with the direct conversion oh, receiver. Yeah. 
and he's produced some videos that he's just he's just enthralled with this thing yeah. it's just the sound and how nice it sounds it's it's you know we're those of us who fooled around with dc receivers know what he's talking about you really feel like you're listening right to the ether you know there's not a, lot, a whole lot of frequency conversion and mixing yeah. and filtering going on there we, we've had 99 requests we're just shy of 100 99 requests for the code but s- something i want to uh, highlight that the dean has done i used the mc 1496 he used he started off with an ade1 just to prove the concept and then yeah. he homebrewed Yep. So he his his is not using an active device. He's actually using a passive device with the uh, homebrew double balance mixer, and it sounds really really good. And they're taking that on as the club project. It's it wasn't just an exercise in his part, but that's the next build for for the VWS. Yeah, I think he's he's trying to do one for the uh, for seventeen meter yes. band, and he asked me about it, and I said, well, you know, for for a direct conversion receiver. You know, you, you really need to build the VFO at, you know, 18.115 or like yeah. that, up there. And that's kind of hard to do with an LC analog uh, yeah, VFO. Yeah. I mean, no problem at all for your beloved SI5351, but, you know. Well, I don't know if you heard the latest story. So he he said he had it working on 40 meters first, and he had way too much gain in the RF amplifier stage. But then when he put that, used that same stage on 17 meters, it was a little anemic. You know, he, he thought that you using a standard of what, what you hear on 40 versus what you're hearing on 17. So I suggest that he build uh, the J310 uh, configured as a dual gate MOSFET because one of the features of that has a pot you can control the gain. So I yeah. said, if you're on 40, you can crank the gain down because you don't need it. When you're on 17, crank it wide open. So he says, oh, okay. And that was the same circuit that originally pilled, appeared with a simple SSB transceiver. So he built it. And he said, it's an attenuator. He said, it doesn't work. I said, well, Dean, all I can tell you is I got half a dozen of these at work, and it works good. And I said, did you do the LT spice simulation? He said, yeah, I did. And he said, you're, you're right. I can change the gain and, and it changes. And he says, LT Spice says that's what it should be, but in hardware it doesn't. So then he started checking components. In one place, there's a bias resistor of 2.2K. He lifts it from ground, puts his ohmmeter across it, and it's 22 ohms. So he thought he put the wrong value resistor. And then he looked. No, it's banded for 2.2K. He had a 10-pack. Every one of the ten pack reads twenty two ohms. You got to check them. <laughs> so, you know, I, I I I check them. I check every resistor so before said, I put it in there. You know, I can see he's not Italian, but I can see him raising. <laughs> well, you know, one of the reasons one of the reasons I check them is because the color codes now they're hard to read. They fade. Yeah, the the, the colors are different. You know, what used to be blue is violet. How can you tell the difference yeah. in blue? All this kind of stuff. So I have a habit now. I just have the VTVM next to me. And before I put the resistor in the circuit, I'll, I'll put the VTVM across it and see, or, or, you know, the VOM, see what it is, what it tests yeah. at before I put it in the circuit. But, yeah, so, but it could happen. Short. It could, <laughs> yeah, it could, short. It could, they, that'll, they, yeah, that'll mess up your amplifier <laughs> yeah. for sure. But, but I mean... <laughs> You, you can just see his mind. He's done all these things. He looks at the spikes. He looks at the wiring. He, you know, there's no shorts that he can see. And then he says, okay, let's measure the components. 
and it was 22 ohms, not 2.2K. But that's a satisfying troubleshoot. When you look in there and you realize that, when you say, okay, that's yeah. it, that's what's causing the trouble, that's much better than just a cold solder joint or something else. That's a good That's a good troubleshoot, yeah. so you should feel good about that. He found it, which is good, and he used LT Spice. And, if, and like you always say, if LT Spice says it should work, and then you build it in the real world and it doesn't, mm-hmm, you got to check. Yeah. Something's wrong there. Well, you know, you know in that uh, what I mentioned about the document uh, that I published, one of the interesting things is about uh, bandpass filters and when you build a bandpass filter you'll find that one component is really very critical and that's the coupling capacitor between the sections yeah. and and one of the problems and and i mentioned this in connection with the nano vna is a as a guy built this and he put his nano vna and he got this really strange looking bandpass and so he says, what's wrong with your design? Starts up, what's wrong with your design? So I said, okay. I said, let's, let's take a look at this. And so I did the simulation, and you, you have a case of undercoupling and overcoupling. And the undercoupling kind of gives you a really pointed response. And overcoupling, mm -hmm. you get like the saddle. You know, it looks like a camel's hump, two camel's yeah. hump. So you got to pick one that's going to give you the flat band pass. So I said, look. Here's the value of LT Spice. I said, you can sit there without building any hardware and just change those values and see see what the shape is. And I said, it'll tell you right away, you know, where you're getting close to the, to the right value because you don't want it peaked and you don't want a double hump. You want it flat across the top. So I said, you tried, tried changing C2. So he, he did that and then he discovered he put the wrong value of C2 in there. But he was relying solely on just what he was measuring with the nano VNA without understanding, Gene Shepard, understanding yep. the impact of that coupling capacitor. If he would have done a little work with the LT Spice, he would have seen what would happen and how to flatten the response. So uh, yeah. I'm, I'm adamant. Do it in LT Spice first and get, get the feel. And then use your nano VNA to verify what you built is actually right. I mean, you may get a different answer because you got a bad component or what have you. In LT Spice, it's so easy to just to change the value of any of those components and then take a look at what happens at the result. It's just it's just easy. That's the whole purpose of LT Spice. So, so I agree with you, Pete. You've also been working on homebrew crystal filters a little bit yeah. too, right? Yeah. Tell us about that. Well, uh, it's kind of uh, it's kind of interesting. I, uh, I I think that there's a there's a real opportunity to, with a lot of crystals that are available to homebrew some crystal filters. And I've got about a half a dozen here. And I should tell you, uh, <laughs> I, I, had a, I had a presentation to a, a radio club in the UK. And uh, it was kind of interesting as, uh, as I was presenting, this one guy uh, got on and says, how come you don't like homebrew crystal filters? He starts off with that. I said, oh, well, I said, well, you know, it takes a lot of fooling around to get a good filter. I said, when I'm building something, I don't want to invest five or six hours going through all the characterizations and what have you. And I said, so I have some package, I have quite a few package filters. I'll get it working. I said, but there, there's certainly room for, uh, you know, including a, um, a homebrew crystal filter in there. I said, but if you're going to do it, you got to do it right. And that may take more than 15 minutes. 
So he said, well, he says, I wrote the software for the Dishel. <laughs> I said, oh, okay. So then, luckily, luckily, right sitting there, I had a six-pole filter built with a Dishel, and I put it right to the screen. I said, just to show you, I, I have built Dishels. And he said, oh, you did a nice job. I said, well, thank you. <laughs> so, I mean, the, the thing is, there's some people that are hard, hard over and there's a place for that, but if you you can build, you found out you build a ten pole filter that's amazing. So yeah, you but you didn't do that in five minutes, did you? No, no, it took a while. It took a lot of cut and try, a lot of experimentation, a lot, a kind of a mixture of using software like Dishel and other other programs like and and, and characterizing the parameters, and then seeing what the result is. And you know, you can't just say, oh well, the software says that this should be the bandpass, so if I'm going to build it this way, and that's it. Well, sometimes there's, for a variety of reasons, it might be a little off. And I, I, I built this thing, and the first time I looked at it, I think it was, it was way too narrow. So I realized by changing the value of the capacitors to ground, yeah. I, could, I could broaden it. And I, I ordered a whole new set of capacitors and put them there. I think I did that once or twice till I got it to where I wanted it. The software was extremely helpful yeah. in getting me close, but then there's no substitute for actually building it and testing it and seeing what the results are. Well, my, my blog posting for today um, covers a homebrew crystal filter, 9, there you nine go. megahertz. 9 megahertz. And, yeah. I, and I went through the digital process and the AAD, and I looked at it on a nano VNA, and it was crap. So I ripped out those capacitors I said to put in there. I installed uh, five 47 picofarad capacitors, adjusted the matching transformers, and look at the plot. It's flat as a pancake. <laughs> so I'm saying. I, I, so I'm saying. Okay, here you go. Yeah, I, I think you know that there. You know, you're you're right, especially for beginners. You know, it there's a and and for guys who don't want to have to spend a whole lot of time reinventing the wheel all the time, there's a place for kind of store bought crystal filters, and I've got a whole box of them yeah. over here waiting for projects. But there's also an advantage in home brewing your own crystal filter a few times because you get it you start to understand what, what what they're talking about in terms of emotional parameters how those crystals really are the equivalent yeah. of lc circuits and how you put them in there and it's just sort of a kind of a, a rewarding i think home brew process it could be quite frustrating if you don't if you're not stopping to think about what you're doing yeah. if you're just sort of throwing a whole bunch of parts on a board and then looking at it and saying Ah, it doesn't work. That Pete Giuliano. <laughs> yeah. Well, take 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 a look at the blog and you'll see the you'll see. The, I, I looked at that and I said, perfect. That's <laughs> uh, really good. Yeah. Hey, um, I, I want you got anything else on your bench no, you wanted to mention? No, just All right. I want you know we 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 were talking about a second ago about IF uh, selection, and I just wanted to update people on where I am with the uh, tw with the seventeen meter. Uh, the uh, 12 meter dual bander project. So one of the things I want to do here is I want to try to use one of my beloved analog VFOs. Uh, and I'm trying to pick a good IF frequency. So I have to look at where crystals are available because we're not talking about bespoke, you know, you can order from Jan or International Crystals, no more of that. You have to look at what's available. So I found that there are crystals available at 21.4772 megahertz, which is nice because it's like halfway between 20 meters and 12 meters, about halfway. 
So if I have that combination, if I, if I select a crystal filter, an IF at 21.4772 megahertz, for 17 meters, I need to run the VFO between 3.3672 and 3.3092 megahertz. Perfect. And, the, and then for the, for, the, for the 12 meter band, I need to run the VFO from 3.4528 megahertz up to 3.5128. So if I have a VFO that's running essentially from around 3.3 <laughs> to a little over 3.5, I can cover both bands. It, it would be it would be good. It would be kind of a neat way to do it. Now I, I ran these numbers through Spurtune, and I I I, I, re, I saw a couple of spurs popping up, but none of them in like kind of the pass band that I'm interested in. There's a couple of spurs that there's a couple of different frequency combinations that'll produce spurs, but they're the kind of spurs that should be easy to knock down. And, uh, and so I'm not really that worried about it. So this is what I'm, what I'm planning on, on doing. And, uh, that's, I think what'll be the project for, uh, for the rest of the, the winter. So if anybody has any ideas about that or sees any problems that I'm not seeing, uh, please let me know. You know, you know, you may have, um, stumbled across something that would really be useful check and, and look in Mauser and DigiKey. They have 15 kilohertz wide uh, FM crystal filters. 15 kilohertz wide FM crystal filters. And one of the frequencies, I think, is 21.5. Wow. And you could make that a roofing filter yep. ahead of your homebrew filter so that you're only going to pass 15 kilohertz worth of signals that will be passed onto that. So you'll, you'll essentially have a roofing filter in the circuit so you'll never wow. more have to worry about it. But check it, and and they're cool really idea. expensive, like four or five bucks. <laughs> I think we could. I think we could handle it. <laughs> yeah, check check and see. I think I think one of the frequencies is twenty one five, which you then could add a roofing filter in there, so that you're only passing fifteen kilohertz worth of signals through that through that filter. Well, check it out. Thanks a lot for that, Pete. I'll check it out. Hey, uh, one thing I wanted to mention. Um, bad dead soldering stations. You you mentioned this about how many how many innocent soldering stations you have killed over your time as a radio amateur. He's he's, he's giving me the evil eye. Pete Pete and I were talking about this on email, and he, he he theorized that the thing broke right after I said bad things about it, or he said bad things about it. But I'm talking about my Extronics 4000 that I bought as a result of a recommendation from George at the New Jersey QRP Club or the American QRP Club. They had this, you know, chat with the designers podcast that I like so much. And they mentioned it, so I bought one. I didn't realize it was a long time ago I bought this thing. So it's worked most of the time. But one of the things I liked about it was it had this kind of hot air blower that would blow. It wasn't just soldering. It was also hot air. The hot air was useful, but it just died and it stopped blowing hot air and stopped heating up. And, and I started looking at it and I started thinking, man, I don't want to fix this thing. I'm just going to get a new one. I got a new one already. Um, and so I started thinking about just throwing it out. Then I looked at it and I said, wait a second. It's got a great box. The box is perfect. It's perfect size box for, for a transceiver. <laughs> you just saved and the it's QF1. Got, <laughs> it, yes. It's got ample socketry. It's got an AC line cord. It's got 
a, a transformer to go from 120 down to 10 or 12 volts. Power supply. It's got, it's got a couple little LCD displays on the front cover that used to be for temperature but could be turned into frequency. So I have put that in my box of boxes for possible future rigs. So the Xtronics 4000 lives on and might perform Yeah, Yeah, but service. why did it die? You know, uh, who was it? Chuck. What's his What's his name? The uh, you you said all the time his blogs disappeared. What's his name? Chuck. Oh Adams? yeah, Chuck Adams. Chuck Adams. Didn't he say he had a soldering iron tip that he's had for twenty five years? <laughs> yeah, uh, yeah. <laughs> so so <laughs> if he can have a soldering iron tip for twenty five years, why did your soldering iron die? I know, I know. But uh, anyway, I've, I've been having good good ones with the uh, with the new ones I have now. I have the the Hakos. Hakos. Uh, hack, yeah, Hakex or Hakos. They they seem to be doing pretty pretty good. This this one, the new one I have, it kind of goes to sleep when you put it in the stand. It drops the temperature down to four hundred Fahrenheit, right? When you pick it up, it takes a second to come up to seven hundred Fahrenheit, right? So I think this actually is a lot easier on the tip. It's not sitting there cooking at seven hundred degrees Fahrenheit all the time. You just gotta hope that that timing circuit doesn't die. <laughs> Uh, I know, I know, I know. <laughs> Fragile stuff. Hey, Pete, time for the solder smoke mailbag. We Wait get a lot minute. of good mail. The shameless commerce division. Oh, the shameless commerce division. Yes, that's right. Thank you for reminding me. Yeah, guys, you know, really appreciate the folks who've been using the the Amazon link up there on the, the solder smoke blog page. It's there. Just begin your search for whatever whatever you want to search for. Just begin your search there, and. Uh, and we will ka-ching, get a little bit of money from Bezos. We're not mad at Bezos because it turns out Bezos is a space geek. Did, did you see what he did in that foreign country? What did he do? Well, he's got this super yacht. He and his yeah. girlfriend got this super yacht, and it won't fit under this bridge. So somehow he dangled something to this country. <laughs> They're raising the bridge <laughs> so he can get his yacht through. You know, he probably said, yeah, I'll put a warehouse here. You know, we'll hire a bunch of people. <laughs> so the deal is... Just raise the bridge. Raise the bridge so he can put his super yacht through. Bezos. It, does, it doesn't mean he's a bad person. He sends us money, <laughs> and he's a space geek. So, all right, good. Anyway, that's the Shameless Commerce Division. Thanks for reminding me there, Pete. Hey, listen, we got some great email. from First, from, from Mike Rainey. Alpha Alpha One Tango Juliet. What a, you know the 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 hero of the Hobbit hole. He's been down in the workshop again, producing some great minimalist stuff. He built a receiver for 486 kilohertz and used it to listen to a memorial broadcast of Fessenden's Christmas Eve. The first phone, first phones, allegedly. Rumor has it, mythological, maybe not quite true, but uh, Mike tuned in and was able to receive signals from the Fessenden Memorial uh, transmission. Who, who so, was transmitting in 486? Did they get special permission? To they do got it? special permission. Yeah, they got special permission wow. to do it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And uh, so, I mean, pretty close to 455 KC <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> territory, but, but good stuff. And my, uh, Michael has produced some other stuff recently, too. I really hope he's getting back in the game because, man, he was an inspirational force in homebrew, QRP, minimalist radio. So we're glad to see you're back, Michael. We hope you continue to melt solder there in the hobbit hole. Um, Thomas, 
K4SWL. He runs a QRP uh, blog, and he also runs the uh, Shortwave Listening Post blog, two really excellent blogs. He came up with a post about amateur radio astronomy using a Raspberry Pi and some simple kind of Home Depot-produced uh, antennas with which you could map the arms of our galaxy, which I thought was, was really cool. Thanks for sending that along, Thomas. I got an invitation to speak to the Lance Cruz Amateur Radio Club out in Michigan from WC8C Dennis. He invited me to speak to the club. And man, I had a great time with this. I, you know, I, we didn't overdo it. I didn't want to sort of lecture them on why they should all be home brewers. And Dennis didn't want me to do that. He said, just share some anecdotes about your own adventures in homebrew radio. So I talked a little bit about Gene Shepard and my uh, my own kind of tales of woe, things that have gone wrong. And I think I think they it, it really I think it, it resonated with these guys, no pun intended, because some of them said, "Yeah, I feel bad because I tried to build something, I couldn't get it to work." And I said, "Welcome to the club." Yeah, yeah. I said, "Pete and I do that all the time." I, I pointed out that you have the shelf of shame yes. you, you shame put things shelf. on. And I also told them, I said, they shouldn't feel bad because often the magazines that they're basing their projects on have Crap. it wrong. Yeah. They're, you know, mistakes in QST, just legion over the years. I mean, 73 Magazine, they didn't even, they didn't make a claim to not have mistakes. They just said, this is what some guy sent us. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> it may or may not work. It may or may not work. Your mileage may vary. But I always thought it was good to talk to them. Um, hey, listen, Todd, K7TFC out there in Portland, really been making great contributions to the blog. He got his booster shot. Now, we all got our booster shot. If we're smart, get your booster shot. I got mine, you got yours, Todd got his, but Todd got his at a cool place. He got the coolest place to get boosted. You know where he got his booster shot? At Tektronix headquarters in Beaverton, Oregon. Is he, is he a former tech? Tektronix employee? I, I, think, I think he used to work at Tektronix mm -hmm. or he worked, worked at one of the associated companies. But I said, what a cool place yeah, to get yeah. boosted. Holy cow. You, you know, it, it reminds me of all the jokes, you know, all the, all the conspiracy theories. And some guy was saying that he got boosted. And he said he didn't know if it had the desired effect, but his Wi-Fi reception was just <laughs> excellent. <laughs> you, you know, a lot of industries are really smart about that. My, my son works for a company in the Bay Area. And they send them email. Says show up this day, this time, this location. Boom, get your booster shot, and it will check your employee record. Yeah, yeah. 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 And good, he said, "Good stuff." Twelve minutes total elapsed time. Twelve minutes. Yeah, man. Hey, listen. I became a believer. I got to say, we got to put in a plug for the for the vaccines and the booster. My wife and I spent a solid month or six weeks in the Dominican Republic, and we were dealing with you know her. Her father passed away, so we spent a good portion of it in hospitals, funeral homes, and and we were fine. We didn't, you know, and this was a place with a very high transmission rate, but I think we were really protected by the vaccines and the boosters because we, we both passed our, our test on the way out, and I thought for sure, man, if anybody's going to get it, we're going to get it just from where we've been, but we, we didn't, so good good stuff anyway go out and get boosted i, I was just going to comment you haven't lived life until you've had a nasal swab test oh no i've had many I, I, I know you know exactly what you're talking about swab <laughs> when it goes down oh, your nose it comes out somewhere else <laughs> i know i know it's God. not not fun Terrible. anyway todd todd had the coolest place to get boosted this gets us to what happened with chuck adams k7qo we you know you'd mentioned him before well, he's he's disappeared from 
the internet, which is fine. All of us want to take a break every once in a while. You know, it happens. But the weird thing here is almost all of his content has disappeared. Mm. All of the YouTube videos, his design notebook, he's disappeared from QRZ.com. This is really, I mean, strange. I mean, it's one thing to say, I'm going to take a break and go away. But we, a lot of us use that stuff. I mean, I really miss the notebook. I, 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 I foolishly didn't download it. If anybody did download it, please please send it to me. Or, or let us know if anybody has any information. Yeah. Or has any information. Why did this happen? This is it's 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 strange because very often like I said you see people who just say I want to take a break, I want to go away, but then it's almost as if there was a deliberate scrubbing of YouTube, qrz.com, the websites disappeared, no email to contact. It's it's kind of it's it's worrisome anyway, and it's it's a loss for, for those of us who depended on this really great great contact. Anyway, if anybody has heard about this, please let us know. Um, I I put up I, I went back through my old uh, logbooks, Pete, and I looked at um, all the contacts that I made as a novice, and I said, how many of these guys are still around? It's been a while. It's been since 1973. So I just put up on a blog post all the call signs that I worked as a novice. So it was like 150 of them, something like that. And I started getting emails back, and three or four of these guys are still around. And wow. one of them, uh, WN2RTH, was one of my main contacts as a teenager. He lived like a couple towns over. And he sent me a real nice email. He's now W1MJA and is is still active. And, and it was really great to, to hear from him. So... You know, he's he's still active in ham radio, and I had a lot of a lot of fun. Glad to hear from him. Another blast from the past. November seven, Delta Alpha reports that he worked W seven ZOI wow. in the sweepstakes. That's really good. You get on the sweepstakes. I know that Wes always likes the sweepstakes. He got on there. N seven DA managed to work him in the sweepstakes. I spotted on the internet. Uh, somebody found a QSL card from W seven ZOI. The guy who found it had homebrewed an SSB rig, and Wes was on the air with a homebrew SSB rig. Ooh. So it was a two-way, yeah. homebrew-to-homebrew SSB contact with W7ZOI. I, I have a copy of the call sign. I'll put it up on the blog here not in, in pretty soon. You and I, Pete, had real nice interaction with Kirk, NT0Z, yeah. formerly of ARRL headquarters, Oop. and he had some really interesting <laughs> things to say. Oop. We don't want to get him into any trouble here, but he, yeah, he well, he was he was quite candid with uh, when he talked to Eric Guth, 4Z1UG, and he talked about how, you know, the ARRL had participated in a dumbing down of, of ham radio. And there's no doubt about that. I mean, you take a look at the, the content of QST, the difficulty of the ham radio and it's exams. it's coming from an Illuminati. <laughs> I'm from, from a member. Yes, I know. I know. Well, he's 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 a former member of the yeah. ARL staff. He's, so anyway, he had a lot of nice things to say about ARL too, to be fair. Um, we had a lot of interaction with Farhan, our friend over there in Hyderabad, VU2ESE. And last we heard, he was heading up to the Pench Forest in India trying to spot a tiger. <sighs> You know, I, I, I good luck. You you and I both spoke to to his club, the Lamacan yeah. uh, Amateur Radio Club, at their at their annual convention. That was a lot of fun. I, I had a lot of fun with that. Yeah, and they did that right. You know that you had to have tests and you had to be cleared and everything else. I mean, that that was an example of how they got a group together and and did the thing right. And Pete, they simul simulcasted us on the QO one hundred geostationary satellite. 
that is, by the way, not above this part of the world. It's above the eastern part of the world. But Farhan sent me a picture of me being beamed down from geostationary orbit, oh, there you go. which I thought I, I put that up on the blog. Very cool. Thanks to Farhan and the Lamacan Club. Uh, Dean KK7DAS been doing. We talked a lot about his adventures. One of the things he did is he built a 16 watt amplifier. So he's got a 16 watt around the air, and I put a, a video of that up on the air. Scott WA9WFA. He's the guy I've been working with on the for the Mighty Midget receiver. He and I made a discovery. We were trying to figure out why his receiver just seemed deaf when mine didn't seem deaf. And he was a really careful constructor. He's, he built an HBR-13. He knows which end of the soldering iron to grab. But no matter what he did, his Made for the Mighty Midget seemed quite deaf. And then we consulted. We talked to Grayson about it. We kind of Googled a little bit. It turns out that the problem may have been the 6U8 tubes. They don't age well. They're long in the tooth. So you could end up with 6U8 tubes that you plug in there and you think they're fine, but the gain is way down. So one of the recommendations was, first of all, don't be too harsh on the 6U8s, but a good replacement for the 6U8 that is a little bit more recent and a little less prone to 6EA8s. So I've ordered some 6EA8s. I'm going to pop them in there when they come and see if that, that helps. I found that just substituting tubes in mine with, with some of the various 6U8s that I had would be, would result in big variations in receiver sensitivity, which was a, a sign. And I think then um, Scott tried the same thing and had similar results. So it's not looking good for the 6U8s. 6U8, 6U8 tubes, they were very, very common. They were used in a lot of TV sets. Collins. All the Collins yeah. radio have them in. I got one in my Drake 2B. Yeah. And I, I checked, it's still a 6U8, it's not a 6EA8, so I'm going to try to change change those out. Anyway, um, Bruce, KC1FSZ sent me for Christmas a box of peppermint bark candy. Oh, and he, he, builds, he yeah. builds the rigs in the peppermint yeah, bark yeah, boxes, yeah, yeah. but he sent me a full box of the candy. Oh, and I, I must say, the person who appreciated this the most was my daughter Maria, who's been eating mint chocolate <laughs> since she was a little girl. So this was like, wow, this was really great. Hey, um, some great videos popped up from Mike, WU2D. He's been doing some wonderful videos, a series of three, on how to build analog LC VFOs. But Mike did a really great job, and he focused a lot on temperature compensation and, and a great way to do temperature compensation. But I was really pleased that Mike started out with the chapter that Frank Harris wrote about about how to build a VFO from his wonderful book, Crystal Sets to Sideband by Frank Harris. I think it's K0IYE. I, I have a link to this up on the, the blog. The book is free. It's just really excellent. And just for reading the, um, the, the chapters on the VFO, I, I, I pledged I'm going to build all future VFOs following the guidance of Frank and Mike and I hope to have even better results in the future. Let me interrupt you a second. One of Dean's builders in the DIY group, he 3D printed the parts to build a PTO. So yeah. his his rig has a PTO in it, and he has he did all the design work for the 3D parts, including the knob. And I mean, it's amazing. And that thing I saw it. It was really, really cool. Yeah, I mean, look what you can do with a 3D printer. 
and they started they started I think with a kit there's a PTO kit available that's based on um, a brass screw that as you turn the tuning dial the brass screw moves in to the inductor and changes the inductor value so that is that is that is a really cool idea and I I, I told Dean that I hope I wish them luck I think the kit was sold for use up to 20 meters you know, 17 is a bit higher, so you should still should be able to do it, but it's hard to make a, a stable oscillator at, at those frequencies. So I hope they have a lot of luck with that. Um, let's see. Who else? Oh, Bob Scott, KD4EBM. Lots of great ideas. Bob always sends me wonderful ideas. It sends me boxes of parts and VHF, UHF radios. You got the and, S- and simple transistor transceiver from him, didn't you? Isn't that the guy you got it from? The simple, yeah, the, the, which with one the NE six hundred two that you take him with you down to the DR. That's the oh yes, he he sent me the SST, the yeah. Wayne Wayne Burdick's yeah. SST. Yeah, I mean, it's great great stuff Bob sends, and so we always appreciate. It. I love it when I get me email or or a box from Bob Scott KD four EBM. Thanks a lot, Bob. Hope to see you at the Winterfest. The Vienna Wireless Winterfest is going to be held this year, and I will be there. I hope to see Bob there. And finally, uh, uh, Roger Papa Alpha One Zulu Zulu. Um, now I, am not sure where he is right now. They've been moving around quite a bit, but he always sends me boxes of parts with really great stuff in there. Well, you got and, the FM and, radio from him, right? Yeah, that's right. I got the FM radio with the and, pillow. And all, with the pillow, with a, with the pillow for acoustics. Indeed. I have it here. So we're always glad to, to hear about that. Hey Pete, we've been going on here for about an hour and 13 minutes. A little longer. (laughs) (laughs) A little hardware problem at the front end. Yeah, I think we're okay. I think we're doing good. And we forgot to say, uh, crank it up, Roger, and crank it up, Ralph. We forgot to say that. No, we we, didn't say it. In the first one, we were recording. Oh, we did it. So anyway, we'll crank it in, Roger. Crank it in, Ralph. Don't want to forget it. No, those guys definitely crank it in. All right, we didn't forget. All right, Pete Giuliano, thanks very much for joining us early this morning. And uh, you know, we'll, 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 we hope it won't be so much time between now and the next. Yeah, uh, Sourcebo and podcast. I had a little fun yesterday. I talked to my son, who lives in Midtown Manhattan, where it was 19 degrees, and we had 72 degrees outside. And I kept telling him that I, there I was in a short sleeve shirt, and it was 72 degrees out. He said, "Oh man, you know, it's cold. Yeah. Colder yesterday, uh, but I don't feel bad. I spent January, December, and January in the Dominican Republic. Yeah, it was yeah, quite sl- shirt sleeve. Yes. All right, seven three from Northern Virginia. Seven three from the left coast. Thanks, Pete. The Solder Smoke Podcast is produced once or twice a month using roadkill computers in an electronics workshop somewhere in the wilds of Northern Virginia. The podcast is available via iTunes and directly from our website, soldersmoke.com. Our blog, the Solder Smoke Daily News, is at soldersmoke.blogspot.com. Send email to soldersmoke, that's one word, at yahoo.com. Solder Smoke is listener-supported, and there are many ways you can help keep the podcast going. Please spread the word. Let your friends know about Solder Smoke, the podcast, and our blog. Put links to the podcast and the blog on your websites. Buy a copy of the critically acclaimed book, Solder Smoke, Global Adventures in Wireless Electronics, available from lulu.com. Begin all your visits to Amazon via the Amazon link on our blog page. In this way, Solder Smoke gets a commission from anything you buy on Amazon. Buy some of our attractive Solder Smoke t-shirts, coffee mugs, and bumper stickers 
at the Solder Smoke Store at CafePress.com. If you have a small business, consider advertising on the podcast or on the blog. Our rates are reasonable and our staff is friendly. If none of this appeals to you but you still want to help, well, we have a donation button in the upper left-hand corner of the blog page. However you choose to help, we thank you for your support. Ciao, bravi ragazzi! Thank you.